this man. Thank you. Good morning, church family. Thank you, praise team. Excellent job this morning setting the table for worship. Oh, that's good. All right. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 24. Now, before you get mad at me and start hurling tomatoes, you're going to say, Pastor, you left Jesus in the tomb last time you're supposed to preach on the resurrection. I hear you, but just know that I have already preached on Jesus and the resurrection at Easter. <laughs> and guess what I will do next Easter? I will preach on the resurrection of Jesus. And guess what I'll do in the next Easter? I'll preach on the resurrection of Jesus. I will annually preach on Jesus' resurrection once a year, I promise you. So don't be mad at me. We will hear it every year and never grow tired of it. Amen? So we're going to advance forward, since I've already preached that last section, to Jesus and the road to Emmaus. Now, a couple things about this. Um, Luke is the only gospel author to record this interaction. Some have said this is some of his best kind of literary work that he did in the gospel is right here in this section of scripture. You know, um, we're going to see here two men. One, we're going to have his name. The other, we're not going to, it's lost in history. And they're discussing all this that's going on. And Jesus is going to kind of insert himself into this. And so this is just an incredible passage where we're going to learn a lot about who Jesus is because what we're going to see is two followers of Jesus who had a very low Christology, so they didn't understand who Jesus really was, and Jesus is going to correct that with who he truly is, okay? So let's, let's kind of look at this together. Uh, church, this is the Word of God. Hear it. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And he said to them, What is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. And one of them named Cleopas answered, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know these things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty indeed in the word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It was not necessary that the Christ it was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Amen. May God have blessing to the reading of his holy, inerrant, and infallible word. 
I pray he writes this truth on all of our hearts because the Bible tells us about itself. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but say it with me if you know it. But the word of our God endures forever. It is embarrassing when you don't know somebody that you should, right? You ever been to a convention or something like that and uh, somebody will come up and say, hey, you remember me? Or you remember my name? You know, I... I can't stand it when people do that to me. I, here's what I do. I go up to people and I say, hey, I'm Travis Tyler. If you'll remember, I was in your seminary class with you or whatever it was. Because here's the reality. I don't look exactly like I did 25 years ago when I started seminary. You know, some things have changed. Some things have moved around and some parts have fallen off in 25 years, right? So, you know, things are a little different. I'm a little grayer, right? So anyhow, um, it's starting. It's slowly starting. Anyway. So this is my best, like, not recognizing a person's story. And it's not actually mine. It's Becky's. And I didn't ask for permission, so I hope this is okay. But this is a lot of fun for me. Uh, 2000, Super Bowl 2000, the St. Louis Rams played the Tennessee Titans in the Super Bowl. Do you all remember this? And the St. Louis Rams beat the Titans. We remember that. It stung a little bit. Nobody liked it here. And Becky at the time was living in St. Louis, Missouri, where she's from. And Kurt Warner became sort of the darling of the NFL as a quarterback because of his rags-to-riches story. He was stocking a grocery store. I'm happy for Kurt. Great, good on him. We're doing well. Uh, but uh, Becky had some business downtown in St. Louis, which included a stop at the post office. And as all United States Post Office services are, they're very slow. And so they were uh, in line waiting to see the next clerk. And Becky noticed a man behind her who was holding some jerseys, some St. Louis Rams jerseys. And people were walking up to him and talking to him and interacting with him and taking pictures with him and getting autographs from him. And Finally, after, you know, 10 minutes of this going on, she figured out that she was standing in line at the post office in front of Kurt Warner, the quarterback for the St. Louis Rams. Didn't recognize him at the time. Uh, you know, that, that, then she, you know, greeted him, thanked him for bringing the championship to St. Louis and all that stuff. As we wept in Tennessee, they were rejoicing there in the post office. But anyway... Why don't these guys recognize Jesus? We, we can gather from the context of this passage, you know, these men are leaving from the Passover celebration. They're walking on the road to Emmaus back to their town. You know, they're doing seven miles. What is it, like 36,000 steps? It's a good ways, right? Uh, the um, Jesus here kind of inserts himself in their conversation. Now, if you're much on Christian art, you've probably seen artist renderings of the road to Emmaus, and it just shows two people on the road, and then Jesus, and that's it. I don't personally think it was like that because uh, there were droves of people in Jerusalem. And now that Passover is over, it's like Dollywood whenever it closes at Christmas time. You ever been to Dollywood when they close at Christmas? It is insanity. Like people are just leaving in every direction conceivable, walking everywhere. But as people do, when people are leaving, they kind of clump up. You ever notice that? If they're leaving a large stadium like LSU or Tennessee beat them yesterday. They kind of clump up. Walk out, right? You knew it was coming somewhere, didn't you? You knew. And this is what happens. And Jesus here sort of inserts himself into this small little clump of two people that are walking here. Two that had been following him who had gleaned from his teachings, right? So let's, let's kind of look at this a little closer here. Um, first of all, the disciples are just overwhelmed by the events in verse 14. 
If you've ever been through a traumatic experience with others, you cannot help but talk about it after it's over with, right? So if you experience the death of a loved one together, you're going to talk about that loved one after it's over. If you uh, go through a traumatic thing at work with somebody, you're going to talk about that traumatic thing at work after it's over. It's just human nature. It's kind of how we process things together. And here, this is no exception in verse 14, being overwhelmed by these events. Um, And there's an issue here, though, in verse 16. They seem to be kind of blinded and not really clear that this is Jesus that is with them. They're not, even though they've sat under his preaching and teaching, they have seen him, they've heard him say he was going to tear this temple down in three days and rebuild it. They don't understand or see that it's him. Why is this, right? If you look everywhere Jesus appears after the resurrection when he leaves the tomb, the people don't recognize him from appearance alone. Every instance, they don't recognize him. Uh, There's a difference there. Uh, Theologians have tried to capture this so that we can understand it. They said there is a continuity and a new knitting together of that glorified body with Jesus exited the tomb. So it's the same body, like at a molecular level, that that's the same body that from last week they laid in the tomb and that, you know, Joseph of Arimathea put in the tomb there. That's the same body that was on the cross. But it has been knit back together and in place. And even at a, theologians have went as far as say this, and I think this is probably right, at a molecular level, his molecules are knit back together in such a way that the laws of physics don't apply to him the way they apply to you and I. For example, the Bible records and tells us that Jesus is able to disappear from a crowd, just pull a, what is it, Frodo Baggins or Bilbo Baggins, just disappear before people's eyes and then reappear somewhere else. Uh, The Bible tells us that Jesus is able to walk through walls. And I've been in ministry now for 20 years and I'm yet to see a church member walk through a wall. I've seen church members walk into walls, but I've never seen a church member walk through a wall, right? It just doesn't happen for us. But at a very molecular level, Jesus is fundamentally different in this state as a resurrected body. Um, So one reason they probably don't recognize him is because it's the same, but it's a little different. Does that make sense? Are you following me? Uh, So he has to, every time people recognize him after the resurrection, he has to say something or he has to do something before they get it, that this is Jesus raised. And this is no exception, right? Uh, There's another issue here, though, as to why they probably don't recognize Jesus. And that's simply, verse 16 tells us they're, they're blinded by their fallen minds. Uh, theologians have a, a word that they use to talk about this problem that we have of our minds being affected by the fall of sin. This goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. It's called the Nordic effect of sin. That's what theologians call it, the Nordic effect of sins. If you'll take for your, just a moment and leave your thumb in Luke 24 and flip with me over to Romans chapter 1 for just a moment, I'd like to show you a verse that very well contains the Nordic effective sin that theologians are trying to describe and it's found in Romans 121 and here's here's what it says for although they knew God this is those that are fallen in sin and don't know the Lord for although they knew God and they know him but they don't know him in a saving way they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened and so 
what this, what this concept that theologians are grasping at and putting together with this and with Romans 121 is that the fall of sin has affected our ability to think clearly. Is this shocking to you? <laughs> this is what theologians, is, this is part of the fall. Um, let me see if I can demonstrate this for you in everyday life. If anyone in here is married, you will be able to relate to this, right? Or maybe if you're in a relationship, I don't know, you'll be able to relate to this. I have other examples too, but I'm going to start here. You get in a spat with your loved one, okay? And here's your thought process the whole time. If they would just repent and own up to what they've done here, I could forgive them and we could put that behind her. That's what the wife thinks. They just own up to that and admit they're wrong, we can forgive them, and we can move on. But you know what the husband's thinking at the exact same time? If she would just own up and admit what she did, I could forgive her, and we could put this behind us, right? They're both thinking the same thing about each other. Who's right? Yeah. I think they both need to fall on their swords and repent, and they both need to forgive, the question then becomes, who's got to go first? Now, I would argue the male should go first because you get the joy of being the head of household. So that means take your dagger out first and fall on it, right? I can remember one night, Becky and I got in a spat. We're laying in bed. You can relate to this, I think. I'm facing one way in the bed and she's facing the other and we're making sure we're not touching, right? We're mad at each other. And I finally said, well, it's time to take out the dagger and fall on it. You know, conviction of the Holy Spirit steps in. Turn around and say, honey, I'm sorry. I was wrong. Will you please forgive me? She's like, you know, I will, of course I will, but I just want to know, why'd you do it? Why did you say what you said? And the only answer I had, and it was the truest answer I could give, and I told her, because I'm a sinner, and I love myself more than anything sometimes. What else did I have? I didn't have anything else, and it was the truth. It was the absolute truth, right? All right. We see this in the political realm. If you paid attention to the dump trash fire that was the last presidential election you saw this right we saw this magnified and clear this dumpster fire of an election that we had last time and you would see christians on social media posting things right and they would say things like i don't see how anybody who could be claimed to be a christian and not see this the way i see it 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 and this the way i see it and if they don't exactly agree with me you need to unfriend me and never speak to me again did you see that stuff here i saw that stuff during the election turned my stomach but i saw it can we remember that we're all affected by the fall and we don't always see Every issue with 100% clarity and 100% accuracy? Could we do that, maybe? All right. So there's a, there's a falling of mind here. Now, verse 17 says here um, that Jesus begins, inserts himself in the conversation. What are you talking about? And the Bible tells us here they stood still and they looked sad. All right, so what's going on here with this passage? Well, uh, a couple weeks ago, one of Adeline's friend's moms called Becky and said, hey, our dog's having puppies. They, they, I think they breed and sell puppies. It's like, I can't remember. It's one of those dogs that's not supposed to be allergenic, but all dogs are allergenic, so that's not a real thing. What are they called? Uh, labradoodles or something? Yeah, thank you. 
As a person with dog allergies, I will tell you that hyperallergenic dogs live in a land with unicorns and fairies, okay? They're not real, all right? There's always some dander, and they make people that have pet allergies still have allergies. I think it's just a way to charge you more money, right, if I had to be honest. Yeah, what's that? They don't shed. Well, you get that. You don't get the shedding. You still get the dander, but you don't get the shedding, right? So you can't have it all. Uh, so I went and picked this little girl up, and uh, she's in the back seat. Ashley's in the front seat. Alan's back there with her. And, you know, it's a happy day when puppies are born and you love puppies, right? I mean, who doesn't love puppies? Even people with allergies like puppies, right? Unless you're just a heartless, terrible person and you don't like puppies. And so I'm talking to her about her puppies. I like, oh, is your mom helping get the puppies? Yeah, my mom's helping. I was like, oh, is your dad there helping as well? Because I saw a couple vehicles there. And, and her whole face just dropped. I mean, her whole countenance dropped. And she was quiet for a second. And she looked at Adeline, and she looked up at me in the rearview mirror, and she said, my dad died four years ago. I was like, oh, honey, I'm sorry, I didn't know. Like, it just kind of changed the whole feel of the conversation in that moment. That's what verse 17 is like. It's just sort of the whole, when Jesus asked this, the whole feel of this conversation just shifted. These people are, they're grieving, and they're sad. They, they feel like they have lost their prophet They have lost one who did great works and miracles, and they're grieving. C.S. Lewis, an observation of how Jesus is doing this, writes the following, and I think this is very helpful because sometimes we don't know what to do in situations where people have had deep losses and griefs, and we feel a lot of pressure to say something in that moment, like we need to say something to alleviate that sadness in that moment. Do you know what I'm talking about? Especially at the funeral home, like you feel this pressure when you go through the line to be like, uh, you know, something profound and comforting, right? That's what you're looking for, but, you know, it's hard. Here's what, here's what Lewis or uh, Spurgeon says. Observe then what the Savior did coming to these mourning ones. He acted wisely towards them. He did not uh, at once begin saying, I know why, you said, why you're so sad. No, he waited for them to speak, and in his patience, drew forth from them items and uh, particulars of their trouble. You that deal with mourners learn here the way of wisdom. Do not talk too much about yourself. Listen to this. He says, let the swollen heart reveal itself. Jeremiah uh, derives a measure of help from his own lamentations. Even Job feels a little bit better from pouring out his complaint. And then this is my favorite quote of the whole thing. Listen to this. If you take notes, this is what I would write down from Spurgeon on this. Those griefs that are silent run deep and drown the soul in misery. It is good to let sorrow have a tongue where sympathy has an ear. Did you hear that? Should I read that one more time? Those griefs that are silent run deep and drown the soul in misery. It is good to let the sorrow have a tongue where sympathy has an ear. Allow those who are seeking the Lord to tell you their difficulties. Do not disclose much with them till they have done so. How many times have we tried to... People have been just silent and they're devastated because they see the situation and the loss and all they see is loss. They don't see any gain at all. You know, the the mistake these disciples make is... Jesus' death, burial, and now resurrection is to their great gain. But all they see in this moment is the loss. How many times when we have been around other people, particularly unbelievers and even believers, and they're struggling with that great loss, and we just want to run our mouth the whole time. And what we need to do is shut our mouth and open our ears. 
and just let them talk about it. Let them share the difficulty and be an active listener. It's sometimes just as exhausting to listen as it is to talk. Did you know that? That's a hard thing for me. But it's true, right? It's true. To be an active listener is needed. So Jesus listens to them. I'm going to advance kind of quickly here since you are familiar with what happens next. They then tell him what happens in the Jerusalem, what, what, what things had been happening during the Passover. And he, you know, almost playfully, like Aslan, whenever he raises back and the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe kind of playfully flocks around after he defeats death and the sin table there and all that, the stone table. Uh, Jesus, I feel like in verse 19, it's almost playful the way he does this. And says, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a mighty prophet. So this is interesting. They think Jesus is a prophet. What's interesting about that? Well, prophets can tell you what's wrong. They can warn you. They can, uh, they can even point you in the right direction. But you know what a prophet can't do? A prophet can't save your soul. A prophet can't die for your sins. Jesus can. Son of God can. The God-man can, but a prophet can't. So their soteriology is sort of short. Their Christology is, so, is short here on who they think Jesus is. They're, they're falling short on who they see him to be. Uh, how our chief priests delivered him over, had him crucified. It moves on down here. It says here, but we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. We thought he was the guy, but apparently he's not because now he's dead in the tomb. I still don't know who he is. Besides all this, it's now the third day, and there's rumors that he's resurrected. Some have went and seen, right? So they don't get it. To them, Jesus is a prophet, a healer, a great teacher, an excellent example, but he's not God in human form. It's a devastating mistake. It's a condemning mistake. And what is Jesus' rebuke to them? What is his loving compassionate rebuke to them in this state you fools (laughs) right that's what he said you fools now remember this is the same jesus who just said in the sermon on the mount don't call people fools and here what does he say to these two men on the road to emmaus you're a fool right i began asking myself this question when is it okay to call someone a fool is there ever a time that it's all right to call someone a fool? Jesus here is calling somebody a fool. What constitutes that? Well, if you look at Psalms 14, verse 1, the Bible tells us, the fool has said in his heart, do you know the verse? There is no God. Jesus calls in Matthew 23, the Pharisees fools, because they make these weird oaths and swear by the temple and that they don't really mean it. When they swear by the temple, they kind of got their fingers crossed. But when they swear by the gold in the temple, they really mean it, and they can be held to that. And he said, you fools, what is of more value, the gold in the temple or the temple in the presence of God that makes the gold valuable? Get this thing straight, right? So Jesus here calling them a foolish foolish when you don't recognize God for who he is in his glory. When you don't recognize and see who God is, you're a fool, Right? I am very concerned about a a new brand of liberalism that values Jesus without venerating him as Lord and Savior. And it it is a predominant problem right now, right? Here's what it looks like. I want to paint this picture for you so that you see what I see this morning and you're warned by it to stay away from it. Phil Gully, which... From what I understand, he's a Quaker minister. 
I didn't even know Quakers had ministers. I thought they just like showed up and then if something happened, something happened. I'm still kind of weirded out by this concept of a Quaker minister. But he claims to be a Quaker minister. He wrote a book called Unlearning God. Doesn't that sound like a novel you want to read, Unlearning God, where he talks about how unbelievers have helped him. And he gives an invitation for people to walk the road to Emmaus with these disciples, seeing Jesus as an example, but not as Lord, right? Uh, That's not the premise of the book, but that's what he's doing, right? And I just want to read to you a section of this. Now, before I read this, let me make myself beyond clear. What I'm about to read to you as a church is heresy. In other words, this is completely wrong. This is altogether awful, and it will do nothing but destroy faith if you believe it. All right. So I want everybody to say this before I read this passage. Pastor T is about to read heresy. All right, you ready? One, two, three. Pastor T is about to read heresy. Okay, good. Just making sure we're all on the same page here. I don't believe this, nor am I promoting this. I'm warning you to stay away from it, but I'm showing it to you so that you can see it. Now, what I want you to do is pay attention to his wording in this because his wording is enticing. It's an enticing invitation that he writes here. Uh, liberal theologians love to quote Philip Gilly here, right? And here's what he says. Jesus was passionate, a healer, and, you know, helped the poor. And everybody's fine with that. Everybody likes that version of Jesus. And if that flowed out of his divine status, that's not a real possibility for us. Even though the church has told us to be like him, if Jesus was fully human, then, then and only then... Could we be truly like him? I'm at peace with Jesus, fully appreciative of his courage and grace, moved by his compassion and stirred by his example for me. I see now it is not necessary to seek Jesus at the right hand of God to defend his perfection or to follow stars singing his praise. I am advanced enough to simply hold his lovely life before me and aspire to such a lovely example for myself. I need not veneration with him as my ruler, for I have welcomed him as a friend. Did you hear that? Did you catch that? Jesus is not God in this view. He is a lovely example, is what he said. Jesus is not Lord in this view. He's just my friend. There's a big difference between a friend and a ruler. Miles of difference. And people are flocking to this in droves in North America. And it's heresy. It is absolute heresy. All right? I'm going to say this as kindly and as graciously, but as honestly as I can. Philip Gully is a fool. He is an absolute fool. Like the men on the road to Emmaus here. You see, Jesus tells us here, you who are slow of heart to believe all the things the prophet said, was it not necessary that Christ suffered these things and entered his glory? And at the beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted the scriptures to them. This is fascinating to me because here's what Jesus does. He rebukes them and he calls them a fool. And then he says, you're slow to believe. That's what makes them foolish and makes them a fool. And then what does he do from there, right? Here's what they have done. They have fixated on events, current events that's happening around them. And what's Jesus' response to a fixation with current events? 
is exposition of Scripture. Isn't that interesting? All these magnificent, spectacular things happening right before them. And what's Jesus do? He goes all the way back to Moses and begins exegeting who he is from Moses and all the prophets so they can see it clearly. What does the church need today, right? This is a problem in the church that people are fixated on events. They want to pick up the newspaper and they want to lock on to whatever new trendy thing is happening, whatever that event is. Pastor, they've just killed 152 red heifers in Israel, so you know Jesus is coming back next week. I don't care. I've got a job to deliver the scripture Sunday morning, right? My job is to do what Jesus is doing an example of. I'm going to deliver for you in this pulpit what the Word of God says, what it means, and how it applies to your life week after week after week, just like Jesus did on the road to Emmaus. We can't fixate on current events as God's people. We've got to fixate on what here? What's Jesus pointing us to, church? We've got to fixate on the Word of God. Gosh, I really thought that would give me an amen or something. Can I try that again? We've got to fixate on something, church. What we've got to fixate is on is the Word of God. Amen. Okay, good. Man, I was getting worried for a minute. We're going to start passing out free coffee right before the service every week. Maybe I should run a few chairs or something to get people waked up. Actually, when preaching class, you know what my preacher took, my preaching professor told me wakes people up better than anything, and I think this has been true, is just if you be quiet. You're just quiet for a minute. People that are sleeping, wake right up. Anyhow. All right. Let's land this plane. You want to? Let's land this plane. Jesus here unfolds for them. He, he makes it clear what the prophecy says. He gives them the scriptures. They talk. They discuss. They held conversation here. Jesus begins with Moses and the prophets. He interprets the scripture. If you could, could see your own sinfulness, he's helping them to see that. You see, see your need for the Redeemer. And he's helping them see the Old Testament is promising that Redeemer through Israel. And what we see today, what Jesus is helping them to see now, is that the empty tomb has delivered that Redeemer. So now salvation is possible. Now God stands with him and now God dwells with man. Praise God for this. Amen. Let's pray. Lord Jesus. We bow before you today and we thank you for this passage. There are so many lessons that are here today that we needed. God, forgive us for our hearts that are slow to believe you. Forgive us for our foolishness where we're taken in by just current events or foolishness to be taken in that your life is somehow just an example and nothing else. Lord, may we just lean into the truth that you are God, that you died for our sins, and you are our only hope for salvation. Lord, we can't trust in our own frivolous thinking. We see today it has been darkened by the fall. We can only trust in the revealed word, Lord, as the sure foundation for our faith. Can't make things up that suit us, Lord. We have to lean into who you've revealed yourself to be. We pray and ask these things in the precious names above all names, Jesus Christ. Amen. We're going to sing now in response to the gospel. You've heard the word of God preached. You've heard the gospel read and preached today. What is your reply? Will you trust him now? Don't see Jesus as just an example. Don't see him as just a prophet. Don't see him as just a great healer or somebody who helped the poor. See him as Lord today. See him as Lord of your life and your Savior, your only hope of salvation. Won't you surrender to that this morning as we sing together? I'll be in the back to receive you.